Well, this morning we finish out our series that we've been in all summer long uh, entitled Counterfeit Christianity. You know, this is the end of summer, uh, kids going back to school, uh, for many of them at least, this week. Some of you teachers are going back, I guess, on Monday or went back this week. And uh, so summer's over and so is the series. And so this has been a summer-long series, Counterfeit Christianity. Hopefully you have gotten a lot out of it. Hopefully you've been challenged in your own faith. What we've done through this series really is we've looked at a lot of different groups that we would call counterfeit Christian groups. You may use the terminology cult group, uh, regardless of what terminology you use. Uh, there are groups that in many cases would claim to be Christian claim to be followers of Christ. But when you begin to examine really what they believe, they are less than that. They would be something uh, uh, counterfeit in regards to some of the major beliefs and areas of doctrine. So that's what we've looked at. We've looked at uh, different groups uh, such as the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the New Age Movement, Scientology, Unity Church, Unitarian Universalists. We'll look at a lot of different groups. But more importantly than that, what I hope is that now that the series is over after today, that you don't go away saying, you know what, that was really cool learning about all these different groups. My desire would be that you've learned a lot and been reminded of a lot about what scripture teaches regarding biblical Christianity. Because more important than what another group believes, we have to know what the truth is. And so we found that from scripture. We've looked through this series at what the Bible teaches us about itself, about God, about a relationship with him about Christ, about the cross, about sin, about man, about life after death. We've looked at all these really big, big, uh, major mountain peak topics as we move through the series. And so hopefully for you, it's been a real challenge. Hopefully it's been something that has uh, helped you to understand God a little better and to know him a little more deeply. And at the same time, to be equipped to share the message of the truth with those who, uh, who don't know it. And for those that especially may be uh, understanding a counterfeit message of the gospel, who may be walking in something less than the truth. So that, that's, the, that, that's my aim for this whole series. Today we're going to shift gears a little bit as we finish, and uh, we're not looking at a specific group. I'm not going to introduce another counterfeit Christian group, but rather we're going to turn the tables and we're going to look at ourselves because there is a time when the whole concept of counterfeit Christianity hits home. And there is a place where, perhaps even for you, you wake up in the morning and you brush your teeth and you look in the mirror, and the realization hits you that I'm the counterfeit. That when I look at my faith, Regardless of what I believe, there are other elements of my life that render what I believe to be counterfeit. That's what I want us to look at this morning. Counterfeit Christianity, and the title of this message is Hitting Home. You know, for, uh, for, for many believers, there's a real boldness in standing up for their faith. There's a real boldness in saying what they believe. There's a real boldness in, in carrying a Bible and putting it on their desk at work, which is a great thing. But the danger, really what we're looking at this morning is whenever our Christianity is just superficial in nature, when it's not deeper, when it doesn't go wider, when it's just a claim really and nothing further than that. Because when you begin to look at a lot of Christians, a lot of believers, and when we look at all of our lives to be, to be honest, there are times when we would have to say that our faith when viewed by others has been counterfeit. Not just the times when we may, you know, we make a mistake or, or, or uh, you know, we say something we shouldn't to someone in our family or, you know, we, we go off on somebody at work and then we immediately feel, you know, broken over that and we confess it to God and we ask their forgiveness and, you know, we try to make it right. I'm not talking about that so much. I'm saying that whenever we claim to be followers of Christ, but our lives have major areas that serve to be hindrances to others coming to know Jesus. 
to the point to where it may be a viewpoint, it may be something that, that we do, it may be an action. But when others look at us from the outside and they see us and they really get to know us, I'm talking about the instances where there are issues in our lives that make and create roadblocks and barriers and obstacles to other people wanting anything to do with the God that we claim to follow. And that is a real problem in the church today because when you begin to talk to people who do not have a relationship with God, one of the reasons when you boil it down, they'll have a lot of other things that they'll say, but when you boil it all down, one of the primary reasons people choose not to have a relationship with God, people choose not to follow Christ, is they, it's because they know too many people who do claim that. And they see their lives. And for some of you, it took a lot of work for you to even be here today. For some of you, you remember a few years ago when you had been out of church for a long time and it finally came to the point to where somebody invited you or something began to stir in you and you decided, you know what, I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to start going again. And you started coming here and you haven't left. And maybe for some of you, today is that day for you. And it's been really hard getting back into church. And the reason for that is because you knew somebody who claimed to follow Jesus. It may have been a parent. It may have been a spouse. It may have been a, a, a friend. It may have been a coworker. But ultimately, they're the ones who stabbed you in the back. They're the ones who ruined your reputation. They're the ones who took your job. They're the one who took your account. They're the one who took your sales ter territory. They're the one who told lies behind your back. They're the one who stole your spouse, right? And they claimed to be a follower of Jesus, and you knew them. You saw them going to church every day, and they put stuff on Facebook and Bible verses, and they had all these nice little fluffy things to say about God, but it never went any deeper. And you knew in your heart, and you know today in your heart, that you were burned by somebody who claimed to be, to be a follower of, Je of uh, Jesus authentically, but they were really nothing more than a counterfeit. And maybe for you, maybe you're, you're wrestling with that same thing in your own life today. Counterfeit Christianity. More than just the instances when we blow it and we own it and we make it right. But when it becomes a lifestyle, when who we are in here doesn't match what we picture out there. You know, Christianity through the centuries has been known for making a difference. And it's been known for making a difference because of the people who had authentic, genuine relationships with Christ. In the world in which the New Testament was written, it was a Greco-Roman world. The, the believers in the first century were under Roman rule. They lived, even though they lived in the in the land of Israel, many of them, as early believers, they lived under Roman rule. As the gospel would begin to spread, Paul would take the message of the gospel outside of what we would call today the Holy Land. That message would begin to spread into more of the, uh, the Greek-speaking cities. And, and, and so there was a real Greco-Roman mindset in the first century early church. What you may not realize is that that Greco-Roman mindset was uh, uh, very much opposed to the very fabric of the Christian faith in a lot of ways. For example, the Greco-Roman mindset was opposed to females rising in society. It, it, it's a known fact in history that, uh, that, that female uh, infants that were born would often, as common practice, be left out exposed in the elements to die. It would be the early church, the believers, that would see something uh, inherently wrong with that and would often rescue those kids and, and would often reach out to those families and would, would raise the level uh, of their lives, whereas the Greco-Roman culture would try to suppress it. It was, a it was a rule, it was a law in Greco-Roman culture that uh, it was illegal for a woman to be unmarried. And for a widow who ultimately uh, uh, was widowed because her husband passed away, they had to be remarried within two years. It was, it was law. But it would be the early church that would begin to really change that course and would reach out. If you read it in Paul's letters, you see 
that it would be the early church that would be commanded, instructed to reach out and to care for those widows and to take them in and not to require them to be remarried again virtually against their will, but it would be the early church that would reach into their lives and would, would begin to embrace them and care for them and to nurture them the way Christ would have. In the first two centuries of history in the Greco-Roman world, whenever plagues began to wreak havoc in some of the urban centers of that part of the world, it would be the Christians that were known historically, history, outside of Christian authors, historical writers write about the Christians, the early church, that would step in to those plagues and would bring in people to care for them at the risk of their own lives. And many of them died because they embraced those with these diseases, and they cared for them, and they nurtured them. And so the early church, the, uh, the, the whole fabric of Christianity has been known for making a difference because of its authenticity. And yet we fast forward to today, and the blend of Christianity that we see in our, in our country, really even outside of our own country, is beginning to, to become a Christianity that's not focused on Christ, it's focused on us. Yeah, have, you, have you recognized that? A lot, of, a lot of proclaiming of the gospel focuses on, oh, come to know Jesus because when you do, your pockets will be full and you'll be rich and you'll never be sick and you'll be healthy and you'll, you'll be wealthy and, and everything will go your way and your life will be like you've never known it before. That's the brand of Christianity that often gets propagated in our own country, outside the, the boundaries of our own country today. And Christianity is becoming more about us and so much less about him and certainly less about them. And so what happens when we take a good, hard look in the mirror and we realize that our walk with God is something less than authentic when we realize that we're the ones that are counterfeit? You know, Scripture has a little bit to say about that specifically. I want to give you a principle, then we're going to incorporate a couple of passages of Scripture this morning, but a principle that I hope you'll jot down. And the principle is this, that we counterfeit our faith ultimately whenever our want with God is insincere. And we're going to look at what that word potentially means in a moment. We counterfeit our faith whenever our want with God is insincere. It's less than authentic to the point to where ultimately it causes another person to stumble or to stray. To the point to where because of our inauthentic Christian lives, it is of such a nature that other people have no desire to know the God we claim to know. And it's almost as though our lives put up a big roadblock, put up a big stop sign that says, do not follow who I claim to follow because they see the inauthenticity in our own lives. Whenever our walks with God are of such a nature, they're so superficial, where there are such issues in our lives to where we, we claim one thing but we live another, whenever it becomes that way and it causes another person to stray, to wander from the truth because they think, well, that person claims to know God, and if they can do this, then I must be able to do it as well. It's that kind of a Christian life that renders at times our claims to a want with God as being counterfeit, our claims to being in a want with God as less than genuine, as being insincere. If you ever study language, there's a word called etymology, and what etymology means is it studies the origins of a word. Uh, some of you, maybe you're you know, English majors or you, know, you, you teach as part of your vocation, you teach English, and, and uh, you may be familiar with that word, obviously, etymology, where you study the origins of a word. You know, English language is not the only language on the face of the earth, obviously, and so we get our words from elsewhere. And etymology studies a word. Well, some would say what I'm about to share with you is, is uh, accurate. Others would say it's folklore. Regardless, I love this picture 
Because when you look at the English word sincere, some folks say that it comes from a blend of two Latin words, sine, which means without, and sera, which means wax. And the story goes, again, I don't know if it's true, I don't know if it's not true, regardless, the, 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 the principle of it is just amazingly clear when we uh, uh, hold it up against what we're looking at this morning. The, the story goes that there were, uh, back in ancient days, there were merchants who would sell their product, uh, mainly pottery. And so they would set up shop and, uh, out of the marketplace, and, and there in their little area, their, their part of the marketplace, they would sell their wares, they would sell their pottery. And it was customary for those that were not completely above board to have cracked or damaged pottery, and they would then repair that pottery with wax. They would fill the cracks, they would mend it back together, and then put a nice coat of paint on the outside so that outside, when you would see it from the outside, it would look like a perfectly usable piece of pottery. However, when that pottery, after being purchased, would be submitted to the elements, extreme heat or extreme cold or or extreme pressure or stress, that piece of pottery would go all to pieces. Why? Because it was not genuine, it was not authentic. It had been patched, and those patches had been hidden. There were other merchants that were above board that chose not to do their practice that way, not to sell their product in that manner. And what they did was they would often put over their marketplace a sign that in Latin would read, sine, without, Sarah wax, meaning everything I sell here is without wax. You can trust it. You can bank on it. When it is exposed to the elements, to pressure, to heat, to cold, it will withstand that pressure. It will withstand those elements because it is authentic. It is sincere. And when we begin to look at the Christian faith, that is a beautiful picture, whether that's just a folklore in in regards to the English word sincere or not. It is a beautiful picture of what often happens in the lives of Christians. We claim one thing, however, beneath the surface, beneath that nice coat of of, of paint that we put of ourselves out in public with our friends on Facebook at, at church, when we get beneath the veneer, what we find for many believers is there are raging issues that go far beyond just blowing it here and there and owning it and moving on. But hypocritical issues that cause others to either stumble, to want no part of the God we claim, or to stray. Paul would write to the church in the city of Philippi, the Philippian believers. He would encourage them at the beginning of the letter And then he would share a little bit of what his aim was. Look at what this passage says in the book of Philippians, chapter 1. It's verses 9 and 10. Notice what it says. Paul says, and this I pray. Here's what he's praying for these Philippian believers. He says that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Why don't we do a series like this where you're looking at what others believe and you're looking at what biblical Christianity is all about so that it will increase our knowledge, so that it will ultimately help us to be discerning of what is true and what is not. He says, that's what I desire for you. But there's a deeper reason, verse 10. He says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So that you may may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere. There's that English word, that you may be sincere. And can we say, without wax. So that you might be authentic, so that you may be genuine, so that you may not be counterfeit in your faith and cause others to stumble or cause them to stray. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be discerning. I want you to prove what is excellent, he says, so that you will be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. That is Paul's desire for the early church in the city of Philippi. Ultimately, that you know the truth and that you be sincere 
and your devotion to Christ, and as you begin to follow him, that you be pure and unmixed in your devotion to Christ. And when he would write to these Philippian believers, I think there would be a lot of examples that Paul would, could have placed before them, but they more than likely would have understood what Paul was talking about. They would remember some of the heroes of the faith, no doubt, as Paul would have taught them. They would remember Noah, who in the midst of his day would be setting out to build an ark in obedience to God. That God, because of the wickedness of the day, would, uh, would uh, instruct Noah to build this ark. Noah had no idea what he was doing exactly, why he was doing it. God would give him instructions. You can almost picture Noah saying, God, what is an ark? And God saying, okay, uh, Noah, I'm going to give you dimensions. I'm going to give you the wood to use. You're going to use gopher wood. Noah's saying, well, what in the world is gopher wood? I'll, I, we'll cover that. And so God gives him all the dimensions. He lays it all out. God, why am I doing this? Because I'm going to send rain on the earth. And at that point, that had never happened. Noah's probably thinking, well, God, what is rain? And God, you know, uh, we'll cover that. And so Noah has to build this ark. Nobody else has ever seen a drop of rain to begin with. That's that point of, you know, in the, in, the, in, the, in the story of man, right? And Noah sets out to build this ark in devotion to God, in obedience to God. You think people didn't slam him for what he was doing? You don't think they didn't, didn't call him names and mock him and ridicule him and make fun of him? The whole reason he was doing it was because of uh, the wickedness of mankind to begin with. They probably ripped him up one side down the other, and yet Noah did what God called him to do. Why? Because he was not counterfeit. He was sincere. He was unmixed in his devotion to God. No doubt the Philippians knew a little bit about Noah. No doubt they knew a little bit about Moses, who chose to forsake his own uh, upbringing in Egyptian wealth, in Egyptian uh, 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 power, and he chose to lay all that aside to identify with his people, the people of Israel, who were slaves, uh, slaves in that day. And Moses identified with them when he could have had much more, when he could have had everything this world offered. Why did Moses do that? Because God called him to lead. And he was not counterfeit. He was unmixed in his devotion to God. And he was genuine and sincere. No doubt these Philippian believers had heard stories about Daniel, who at risk of his own life could have chosen to pray privately where no one else could see. And yet, according to his custom, he prayed in public with the windows wide open, knowing that whoever did so would be ultimately placed under the sentence of death. And because of his devotion, because he was not counterfeit in his faith, Daniel prayed publicly, and the result was that he got thrown into the lion's den. No doubt these Philippian believers had heard about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who ultimately would face punishment at the cost of their own lives had God not intervened, thrown into the fiery furnace because they were unmixed in their devotion to God. No doubt these Philippian believers had heard about Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who ultimately would see his life come to an end as a result of being stoned by his enemies because he chose, chose to follow Christ with unmixed devotion. He was not counterfeit. He was sincere. He was genuine. He was authentic. And you may have heard the numbers and the figures that in the, early, or in the modern day church today, there have been more, moder, there, there have been more martyrs in the 20th century alone up till today than the previous 19 centuries combined. Why is that? Because scattered around this globe, there are followers of Jesus Christ who have heard the message of the gospel that has changed their lives, and their lives are not different anymore. Their lives don't belong to them. They belong to, to their Savior. And at, at the point of even risking and giving their own lives, they paint a picture for us of what it looks like to walk with God with unmixed devotion, without wax, sincere, not counterfeit, but genuine. And yet we come to today, and for far too many believers, 
It's about what's in it for me. At the first sign of resistance, difficulty, suffering, it's out the back door. Inauthentic, insincere, and in many cases to such a degree that others are stumbling and straying because of it, rendering their faith counterfeit. You know, I think there are three areas today where believers most often render faith counterfeit. I'm not saying three areas where people prove that they're not Christians. In some instances, yes, there is such a thin veneer of claims to know Jesus that really there is no substance at all. Where that person has been in church so long, they've become almost insensitive to the fact that they've never given their lives to Christ. Yes, that happens, absolutely. But today I'm talking more towards those who once walked with God. But today there has been such compromise come into their walk with God that their own faith has been rendered counterfeit. And I think there are three areas where that often happens most. hope you'll jot these down. One is here, that when our views are not informed by Scripture. If we consistently as believers, as followers of Christ, come to a place to where our views in this world in which we live are not informed by Scripture, then it will not be long before our faith is rendered counterfeit. The reason for that is because our culture is becoming increasingly hostile towards the message of truth, towards the message of the gospel. You probably notice that in this age of tolerance, everyone and everything is tolerated except the follower of Jesus and a biblical worldview. You probably recognize that, correct? That any other group, any other claim, any other religion, any other stance, any other view, any other opinion can be tolerated because on the, you know, on, on the, the basis of we need to treat each other equally, every view is welcomed except the view where it says Jesus Christ rules and reigns and his word is the only truth. I mean, you probably recognize that in the culture. And so what has happened is, is that what we find... We talked about this a little bit last week, and you can hear that message on all these on our website. Uh, so I won't rehash all of that in detail. But what we saw last week was that there are many instances in our culture where Christians, because of the cost or because we don't want to offend or because maybe we're not quite in love with God the way that we should be, we've chosen to go soft on certain stances in our culture and at, at the expense of our own faith. And we've rendered our, our own faith to be somewhat counterfeit because we're not willing to stand on the truth of God's word. Listen, our views have to be informed by scripture. If you really believe that scripture proclaims to us truth according to God, then we have to be willing and we have to be careful that our viewpoints and our opinions and our views are all shaped by scripture. Now, if you don't believe that scripture is God's truth, that's a whole other set of issues. We kind of dealt with that the second message of the series. But the, the Christian view is that God's word is truth, God's word is absolute, his truth does not change, and it is according to him, not us. We're not called to dictate truth, we're called to follow truth. He's the one who dictates it, we're the ones who adjust and, and apply. We have to have our viewpoints ultimately informed by scripture. Listen, in this world, as it relates to marriage, as it relates to sexuality, as it relates to equality, as it relates to race, as it relates to abortion and when life begins, those issues must be informed by scripture. And though this world will say, well, you are not entitled to your opinion, it is not opinion. It is God's perspective clearly established in his word. Sexuality is not up for us to decide where we can 
move the boundaries. That is not our choice to make. God has already made it clear what sexuality is. Sex outside of marriage is sin. Does not matter what the world does or thinks. God says sex is reserved only for you and your spouse within the context of marriage. And by the way, that marriage is a husband and a wife, male and female, though the culture disagrees and the culture moves the boundaries. It is truth that dictates for us. We're called and we're called and ultimately expected by God to respond to his truth and adjust accordingly. We cannot afford on any of the areas of our culture to, to allow our viewpoints to be shaped by anything less than God's word. And when we do, we're going to render our, ultimately, we're going to render our faith as counterfeit. There are whole entire denominations today that are dying, that are dead on the vine, that are doing absolutely nothing for the sake of the gospel because their viewpoints and their views were not informed by Scripture. And I could give you a list if you ever want them. We have to shape our viewpoints according to the truth of God's word. A second way that I believe specifically that Christians render our ultimate faith uh, ultimately as counterfeit is whenever our values are not reflective of Scripture. When our values are not reflective of Scripture. In other words, what matters most? What do we spend our money on? What is the motivation of our lives? What gets us up at night or, or in the morning? What, what's the last thing on our mind at night when we go to bed? Where are our values? What matters most? Is it accomplishing? Is it acquiring? Is it advancing we ourselves? Or is our value found in advancing the message of the gospel and being the people God created us to be and ultimately leading others to know him as we know him? Think about it this way. Whenever your life comes to an end, and I hope we're all 120 when that happens, you know, I heard one guy, that question was asked, what do you want people to say about you 100 years from now? And he said, I hope they say, boy, he looks good for his age. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) That's a good one. That'd be nice. So I hope we're all 120, 150, whatever that equates to for you. You know, hopefully that's you. Uh, You know, but whenever that time comes, imagine that somehow you know that your your days are numbered, your days are close. You've got a week left before you step out into eternity. When that time comes and people come to pay their last respects to you and they come by your home to speak to you and to thank you for the life you lived, what exactly do you want them to thank you for? When you think about your family, when you think about your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, your close friends, your work associates, what do you want them to thank you for? And let me say, whatever that may be for you, it's not going to happen by accident. And I surely hope that at the very top of the heap that what they will thank you for is the difference you made for the sake of the message of the gospel, the difference you made in their lives of showing them what God looks like and what a life looks like yielded fully to him. And that has everything to do with what we value. You know, the Christian church today has a lot of issue because we don't value the things that Jesus did. We don't value the things that those early believers did. And we don't value the things the church fathers did in the first three, four centuries of our, of our uh, Christian heritage. We don't value the things that people who die for their faith value. And as a result of that, we have churches today that are anemic. We have churches today that are accomplishing very little for the sake of the gospel. We have churches that ultimately are promoting nothing more, nothing less than themselves. And yet the power of God has long since been abandoned. It's been a long time since many of those churches have even felt a genuine move of God. So what do you value? When our values are not reflective of Scripture, 
we're on the verge of rendering our faith as counterfeit. And then last, we render our faith counterfeit when our actions are not consistent with Scripture. Remember, counterfeit Christianity hitting home. When people see the way we live our lives, think about this for yourself. When people see the way I live, outside of church, inside of church, underneath my roof, when nobody else really is around, when people see my life, does my life create in them a desire to know God as I do? Or does my life repel them from a close relationship with God? Think about it this way. If people followed God, if people followed my lead in their relationship with God, would they get to him or would they not? If people followed my lead in my relationship with God, would they end up closer to God or further away? Would they be attracted to him or would they be repelled from him based on what they see in me? Listen, the Christian standard is different. It's different. And when we turn from our sins and we place our faith in Jesus, here's what we're saying we've done. We're saying that my sin is of such an atrocious nature that I affirm and I believe and I agree that it costs God his own son, Jesus, to die to pay for it. And so as an act of my will, I'm going to turn from my sin. I don't want it to characterize me anymore. And I'm turning to Jesus. And as I surrender my life to him, I'm giving up all right and reign to my life. That's what salvation is. It's not just giving a mental assent. Oh, yeah, Jesus, thanks. I know you did this. It's saying, you know what? I turn from my sin, and I'm going to follow you with my whole life. Now, granted, we don't always do that well. I understand that. And we've all got a long way to go to be like Christ. I fully get that. But we're making a decision at salvation to turn from sin and to follow Jesus with all of our hearts. When we choose to do that, we have to expect that there are going to be things that are going to be different. That we begin to run our businesses differently if you're a business owner. That our marriages begin to look different. That we treat each other with a level of respect the world doesn't really know. That our love is of an unconditional nature. That it's not, well, if you love, I'm going to love you until you do this. Because if you do this, then I'm going to be out the back door. Or I'm only going to love you if you do this. And if you do that, I'll love you. And if you don't, I'm going to withdraw my love. That's not the way Christians operate. It is an unconditional love. When we raise our kids, we raise kids differently than the world does. What we do on weekends looks differently than what the world does. Who we, who we spend time with in a way that it shapes our lives is going to be different than the way the world does that. And the way we pursue those who have wronged us, the way we deal with those who are even our enemies, is going to be of such a nature that the world has no concept of how we even accomplish it. Things change when we become followers of Jesus. That should be expected. And whenever we begin to look at what counterfeits a person's faith, oftentimes if you ask an unbeliever, why don't you want to follow God, as I mentioned earlier, it's because I've already met enough Christians who claim to do that, and they're the ones who cause so much trouble in my life. And what they're saying is it's because their actions were not consistent with Scripture. We counterfeit our faith when our walk with God is insincere, less than authentic, and we ultimately cause another to stumble or to stray. So let me ask you a question. For the people who live under your roof, for the people who work in your workplace, for the people on your campus, for the people who know you best, and the ones that only meet you briefly, do they know that your walk with God is genuine, is authentic, is sincere, is from the heart, not perfect, but that it's from the heart? Or would they say that your walk with God is less than authentic, counterfeit the apostle john wrote would write a letter to a group of believers 
in that letter, he would ultimately uh, name a couple of names. One that would be good, one not so good. The issue, as John wrote this particular letter, was that the early church would encounter, a bit unlike today, traveling preachers that would stay at different houses. And it would be the body of Christ that would house those traveling preachers and care for them and meet their needs while they were there proclaiming the message of the gospel. Well, there was an issue for some not doing that so well. And so John would write a letter. We know of it today in our Bibles as Third John. And he names a couple of names, three names to be particular, two of which I want to look at quickly as we close. Uh, let's take a look here at Third John. It's only one chapter long, verse 12. He says in verse 12 here, John writes, and he names the name of Demetrius. He says, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. In other words, John says to everybody as they read the letter, hey, anybody here heard of Demetrius? And the whole church would be like, oh, yeah, we know Demetrius. Yeah, he's here every, you know, every time we get together. Uh, and, and John would say, you know, everybody knows Demetrius, right? He's authentic. He's from the heart. He's genuine. He's a follower of Christ. Everybody gives a good testimony about who he is. Uh, I give a good testimony about who he is. The truth itself bears witness, you know, that this is a genuine, authentic follower of Jesus Christ. Everybody agree? Yeah, everybody agrees. Well, then in the letter, John shifts gears a little bit. Actually, before he mentions Demetrius, he mentions another fella by the name of Diotrephes. Read what he writes about Diotrephes, and I love John because he cuts right to the chase, and, and uh, he gets to the heart of the issue regarding this church. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. <laughs> That's a bold statement, isn't it? Wouldn't you hate to be Diotrephes right about now? Probably sitting on the front row thinking, all right, we got a letter from John. I know he's going to name me. I know everybody's going to, they're going to expect to hear my name. I can't wait for this. Let's, let's get it on. Let's get it going. And, and John says, I wrote to you concerning Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, and he does not accept what we say. For this reason, John says, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. <laughs> I love this. Yeah, being a Christian is such a, such a wimpy, right? It's so wimpy. He says, and I'm, who unjustly accuses us with wicked words. And, he, and not satisfied with this, by the way, he says, he himself does not receive the brethren. Other Christians that come through proclaiming the gospel, he doesn't receive them. He won't let them stay with himself. He won't even embrace them. He won't, won't take care of their needs. And by the way, he forbids those who desire to do so, and he puts them out of the church. Sounds like a guy you want at your birthday party, doesn't it? Let me ask you about Demetrius. Authentic, without wax, genuine, sincere? Check. What about Diotrephes in church every Sunday? He knows all the words to the songs. He knows all the lingo, all the right words to say. On the surface, he looks as though the church is built on his own shoulders. But when you read what John says about him, is he without wax? Is he sincere? Is he authentic? Is he in it for the sake of the gospel? No. But everything we read from John is that at least in this part, point in his life, his faith has been rendered counterfeit. He's not the first, and he won't be the last. My hope and prayer is that in our walks with God, that they be so sincere and genuine, and devoted, despite the culture, despite the cost, that anyone who knows us knows that there goes a person who loves God with all of his heart, not perfect, but a follower of Jesus to the core, without wax, sincere. Let's pray.